everybody. This is Chaubert Chaberry back at the Chaubert Show. Excited to have another wonderful guest who I'm fortunate enough to be friends with, Elias Bizanis. Uh, thanks so much for being here, man. I know you have a very interesting story with a unique background in tech um, with a global perspective. So thanks so much. I know it's pretty late in our time here in the West Coast uh, for making this happen. No, no, thank you. And if anything, this is great to reconnect. It's been, we used to talk all the time. And then I think since the, what do you call it? The great reset with COVID, uh, I've kind of disconnected <laughs> from everyone. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is kind of an acceleration of like, uh, you know, how to, instead of being in person, what are some fun ways to get connected? And I think this podcast angle is definitely one of those that I've been wanting to do for a real long time. So it's cool. Um, so why don't uh, you introduce yourself a little bit and uh, be interesting to know who you are for everybody to uh, to listen to. Sure. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for pronouncing both of my names correctly. I've, I've been blessed with not one but two unpronounceable names. So they're Greek names. I'm very proud of my Greek heritage. We kicked your Persian asses a few thousand years ago, but you've also oppressed us. So I know there's a bit of tension there, but I think we're, it's been remarkable how similar the Persian culture is to Greek culture. And, I, and that's why I'm so glad that we have that friendship. I've made some yeah. great Persian friends over the years. Uh, but I grew up in Australia. Um, I was born and raised. And actually, my father's father was a refugee from Turkey, a Greek refugee, when there was a population exchange 100 years ago. And he, he didn't like Greece. And he caught a boat to catch up with his uncle in Australia. And that's how the family started. So wow. my father was actually Australian with a, a Irish-Scottish mother. But uh, my mother was a fresh off the boat Greek. So that's why, why I was brought up Greek. And um, yeah, I did my studies in Australia, schooling and everything. And then um, after I got my qualifications, I decided to move to Silicon Valley. And I've been now in California and San Francisco specifically for, well, I moved in 2009. So technically, that's well, I'm on my 13th year, but that doesn't count all the travel I've done, including most recently, I spent eight months in Russia. And, uh, yeah, overall, I've probably been to about 50 countries. So I've probably spent about two years of my life traveling. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of what I've done, I, I, uh, I wanted to be a journalist. So I decided to become an accountant. And then I ended up in Silicon Valley working at a search engine in venture capital, creating an incubation business, uh, part of which is still running. Uh, running a company called Zoom Systems, which was at the time a $20 million a year uh, retail automation company that's now been acquired by Swift. Um, and lately, I've just been doing some consulting um, and looking to maybe join full-time on a friend's new gig, which we haven't talked about, but maybe I can share. But um, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah, well, that's pretty exciting. And I, I did not know that story uh, about your uh, parents. Um, so I am intrigued actually. So one of the things is like we talk about is tech, um, stories and culture. I'm intrigued to learn more about like, you definitely have, uh, multiple backgrounds in your Greek and Australian background. So growing up in Australia as a Greek immigrant, there's a lot of actually Greeks, uh, who live in Australia. What part of Australia? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm from Sydney, which is not the most populous Greek city. Melbourne is considered the biggest Greek city outside of Athens um, in the world. and uh, But here's, here's the thing, like under that definition, my mother is considered Greek, but yeah. my father wouldn't be. And to be fair, he was brought up Australian, but I wouldn't be considered Greek either. 
And so when you count all the people that aren't, you know, Australian citizens, but also have a heritage at a Greek, like I, I speak Greek fully. I'm Greek Orthodox. I, I, I've, I've probably spent actually a year to two years of my life in trips to Greece alone. So I, I was very much brought strongly up in the Greek culture. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not Greek under that definition. So when you count people sure. like that, it goes from like, half a million people to literally millions wow. of people. And Australia is earning a population of about 22, 24 million right now. Wow, that's huge. I remember this has got to be mm, almost 20 years now. There was that Cypriot uh, tennis player. I think his name was Bagdadis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, who, yeah. Bill, he was also... I think, I think he was uh, the Greek side of Cypriot. I mean, obviously it's not Greece. So I'm fully <laughs> aware that Greece is a separate country from Cyprus, but Cyprus has the Greek-Turkish kind of rivalry uh, slash. It's, no, it's just sorry. <laughs> no, no. I was gonna say when he came to the Australian Open, I think he I, he won it once. It was a huge Greek contingency crowd um, that sold out the and just really cheered him on. Um, yeah, you know. I'm, but I, you were gonna say something. Um, I think I no, no. Just uh, the whole the whole Cypriot thing. Um, yeah. yeah, like the the, his, the history of culture, Greek. What did it means to be Greek, and why Cyprus is a separate country? I mean, that's a that's a whole discussion in itself. That's actually I've been lately doing a lot of reading on and trying to understand it myself. But um, yeah, Cypriots are basically like the the rich Greeks, you know, like the the people that kind of grew up a little separately. But yeah, all the Cypriots that are in Greece, they're considered like the rich Greeks. They're a little different. So like a little weird just- accent as well. Yeah, <laughs> the dialect is a little different. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you this now that you bring up like Australia and being Greek. I mean, when I was in college, the big fat Greek wedding came out, and uh, being Persian, there was a lot of relatable stuff. I, mean, I call maybe it's the Mediterranean thing, the family, the culture, you know, uh, the love. Maybe it's overbearing, what have you. But did you just instantaneously you and your friends be like, oh, finally something that we yeah. relate to uh, <laughs> and show your friends in Australia with or? Yeah, well, um, I had a big fat Greek wedding actually over, over in Greece uh, just a few years ago. But yeah, the, the the point that you make about Persian culture and Greek culture being similar, there's actually a very good reason for that. And um, we all know about ancient Greece and ancient Sparta and ancient Athens. And then they kind of kept fighting with each other. And then Alexander the Great just conquered mainland Greece. Yeah. Then he conquered all the way to India. And yeah. what a lot of people don't realize is this huge chunk of history, which is uh, they call the Didache years, and it's basically the Hel- Hellenistic age. And basically, for three hundred years, everywhere between Greece and India, give or take, was largely Greek speaking or Greek dominated. And so that's the reason why Greek was the lingua franca of the ancient age because of that 300 year domination period before the Romans came about. So what happened is this fusion of cultures between yeah. the Persians and the Greeks um, and the Indians. And, and, yeah. So it, it, that's, yeah. that's actually, that's, that's a history that I'm recently getting aware of. But when I started meeting, you know, guys like you being Persian, uh, meeting Jewish friends, meeting even Indian friends and seeing how similar the culture is, it's, it is mind blowing. Like I actually traveled to Iran and backpacked through Turkey and all that. And I would hear the same wow. Greek song s- sung in Turkish and sung in Persian when I'm on the on the buses in these really? countries. Yeah, yeah. Like literally the same music is listened to between these three different cultures and, and countries. 
um, because they are very, yeah, that's a culture that's kind of grown up together. Yeah, do you rem- uh, do you remember what's the name of the song? Actually, I'm curious. Oh, I, I, I that I couldn't tell you right now. It's been a okay. while since I was in the music. Yeah, I yeah. remember. I, I, I vaguely, like I recognize the song. Wow, I vaguely remember you went to Iran. You have an interesting story there. Uh, what do you yeah. remember? What year it was, and what like you? I think you said you lost all your money. <laughs> Yeah, that's happened all, a few all times. All the countries in, my life. in the world yeah, yeah, yeah. had to lose your money, yeah, and somehow yeah. uh, you made it out. Uh, but you, I mean, you, you know, people helped you out and so forth. So, do you, what was the quick, uh, quick story about that? Yeah, so basically, I, I took a year off and went backpacking to twenty-five countries, and uh, part of that plan was to go to the Middle East. But I got I partied too hard in the in on the Greek islands, and I got pneumonia, so I couldn't really do my Middle East trip. But because I already had the visa to go to Iran. I decided to just make that the focus of that segment of my trip. And so I had 10 days in Iran and I caught a bus from Athens, traveled through Turkey, went through the border, got to Tehran. And I had cash on me because US dollars that I converted in Istanbul uh, from my Aussie dollars. Uh, and the reason for that is there's sanctions in Iran. Well, at the time, it was the axis of evil. It was 2005. And so you had to bring in hard cash. So I went and exchanged my cash. And I went to this like private bank and then there was like this one dude looking at it and then another dude came and he called it a bunch of, and there was like a whole group of bald headed dudes, like really scary looking dudes looking at my money. And I'm going, what the hell's going on here? And yeah. then he shows me and he goes, this is counterfeit. And so this was a US dollar, hundred dollar bill. It looked like a legit bill, but he showed to me the difference between a legit bill versus another. And so it had a watermark and everything. But on the hundred dollar note, if you actually angle it, the green one hundred turns black. Yes. And that's a very yeah. hard thing to counterfeit. And so he he ripped it up in front of me. And Whoa. when I went back to my hotel room, I looked at this other hundred that I had stashed and that was also counterfeit. So basically I had six hundred US that I had budgeted for my entire trip in those ten days, including a flight out of the country which, by the way, doubled in price when I went to go book it when I was in Tehran. Um, and 200 of my 600 ended up being counterfeit. So I basically was stuck in Iran with a flight to the south of the country in um, Shiraz the next day with yeah. only 400 US and with no way of flying out of the country other than a 400 US dollar flight that had doubled in price uh, the day I arrived. And yeah, it was the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So, what uh, what did you end up doing? Uh, like, how did you get out? And did you basically, yeah. you know, did someone, one of your friends, book book a flight for you internationally? Or well, it's it, it's like it's my my whole family were like calling me every day when I was on the bus in Turkey, going, "Don't go to Iran. Don't go to Iran." <laughs> Don't turn around, and I'm like, I have to go. Like, I, I, at the time, the, the media was kind of like projecting Iran and Axis of Evil as like the worst thing in the world, and I'm like, this this doesn't seem right. I need to see it for myself. And so, I when I, I I put so much effort to get this visa and the travel to get there, and then to have this experience, and I, I felt completely deflated. But at the same time, I couldn't call up my parents and go, Hey, mom and dad, I'm I'm in Iran and I'm actually stuck here with no cash. And by the way, there's nothing you can do to help me because, that, um, you know, it's shut off from the international system, for example. Uh, so I had a long, hard think about it and I just decided, you know what? I've got enough cash to actually survive. And as a worst case scenario, I could probably find a bus to Armenia where there is an ATM. And right. I, just, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to take this flight and I'm going to work it out. And 
I was very active on the Lonely Planet uh, forums at the time. Uh, I think it was called Thorn Tree. I don't know if it's still running. And I basically posted something saying, SOS, I'm stuck in Iran with no money. And uh, yeah, <laughs> long, long story short, I had a Lonely Planet writer, like the, the author of the Iran edition or something like that, connect me to a travel agent who had connections to the UAE where they were able to process my credit card uh, to get a flight. And the 400 cash that I had just kept me going for the rest of those seven days. And those first three days sucked, but those next seven days were, I mean, like I said, I've been to 50 countries. I would rate Iran, if not in the top three, probably in the number two or number one position in terms of the experience that I had. It was phenomenal. It's an amazing country. You know, uh, you're pretty much way before the social media, like travel influencers. I mean, these guys, I've been watching like the Drew Binskys and the Nas Dailies of the world who have millions of followers or hundreds of thousands of followers who, who do this for a living. You literally were doing that back in the day. Um, if only you well, could have had like, social media like you do now. Well, I actually, uh, I, I, what I got inspired is I read a bunch of travel blogs and I, there was this one guy who was just hilarious. He would go to these random countries and just take the piss out of them. And so... I got inspired to start a blog, partly for myself, just to remember the trip. So yeah. I started a blog and wrote about every country. And I actually developed a bit of a following. Because I was active on the Lonely Planet forum, my signature linked to my blog. I got a lot of travelers following up with me. And so, yeah, wow. I actually developed quite a bit of an audience um, on my on my road trip. Um, it wasn't like anything significant, but it was enough. to. It was kind of cool to get these random emails from people. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, fascinating, actually. Did so? Did any of this? I know uh, one of the things I traveled abroad, and I keep seeing Australians. I keep asking. At some point, I grab them. Like, look, why is there so many Australians everywhere around the world? They said because <laughs> it takes us forever to get out of the island. Really, <laughs> uh, and we want to hang out with people and you know have a good time. But um, I'm curious. Like, I mean, obviously, from now your experience traveling the world. Um, you obviously have multiple cultural facets. Uh, what what led you, um, you know, like what did you end up studying? Did, was was this like college before this or after? And then, oh, no, you know, so what, this uh, was, yeah, this is the year after my college degree. So okay. I, I did a, I did a three year a university in Australia. Three years. I did a bachelor of commerce, accounting and finance. I got a job lined up at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I managed yeah. to convince them to defer my contract by two years and I finished my wow. degree and then went traveling for a year. And basically when I ran out of money, I my job started and that started the next <laughs> part of my life. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and then from Pr- Price Waterhouse, which is actually a good place to start your career, um, what did you do? You ended up, you said, so you were doing... Uh, Price Waterhouse Accounting, right? Then you you basically uh, when did you do the journalism and and then the search engine? Well, the, the journalism thing kind of started in high school. I created a student newspaper, and I guess that's the first time I really created a product. And I never, I will never forget the experience of all these schoolboys reading the newspaper I created as I walked into the bus. And I was like, that's a, that was a really satisfying feeling. And I didn't realize that at the time. And then I created um. A bunch of events and i remember uh going to the bank and the the lady that ran the universe uniform shop she kind of said oh kid you know move along i've got real money here and then when i went to the teller i was actually depositing like i think it was like five thousand dollars or something for this um party i was organizing and the wow. teller's like how does a 15 year old 
have that much money? And, you know, the lady looked at me and she goes, that's because he's an entrepreneur. That's the first time I've heard that word. Um, and But growing up, I had like this culture of, you know, the school I went to as well as my family, just like get a very traditional type of career and you can't go wrong with business. And that's kind of why I pursued the track I did. And the only reason I took the job at PwC is I was like, I figured I needed a job after university and they sure. got a bunch of positions and I just, I just applied. I actually didn't even know what I was going to do there. Um, and I got my CPA. So I, I, I did three years there and I did the postgraduate diploma. So I'm actually licensed globally as a CPA, chartered accountant. And once I got that, um, I, that's when I knew it was time to move. When I was actually at PwC, I rolled out social media technology. So this is like back in 2006 when it was still very early days. And so that's, that gave me a taste of being an entrepreneur because yeah. well, that's exactly what I did. I had to get sponsorship from the CEO and I rolled out a cultural change program using uh, wiki and blog technology. And that got me connected to the Sydney tech scene. And that's when I met a bunch of entrepreneurs back when Sydney's tech scene was still pretty nascent. You know, I, I, yeah. guys like Mike Cannon Brooks from Atlassian would, would, you know, attend these types of dinners and it was guys like that Very cool. you know, before yeah. they became multi-billionaires. Um, and uh, yeah, like I, that's when I realized I, I need to pivot my life to tech. And that's when I decided right, if I want to start a business, I should go and do it in California because there's just way more people there to make money. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how my career kind of evolved. How did just someone like yourself from Australia like get connected to the Valley? Did you come here um, like on a whim? Did you actually get a sponsorship? I know um, I've talked about this before. I know like Australia, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's the case anymore, um, but his, like in the past, Australia had probably the best visa um, partnership with the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was that visa called actually? Do you, do you remember? It's called, you the, it's called the E3. Yeah. It basically, yeah. Um, it was attached to the free trade agreement that George Bush and John Howard, the Australian prime minister negotiated. Um, and I, I think it's because they were trying to get Australian spies involved in the war and that's why they created it. But anyway, at the time, everyone thought of it as like part of the goodwill between the relationship between America and Australia. But yeah, it's a, it's an absolute godsend having the E3. In terms of how I got connected to the Valley, that's a, that's a story in itself. I, um, around this time when I, after I went to this event where I met uh, Sydney entrepreneurs, I, I met a guy who said, you should go to this conference. I went to this conference and I heard about this thing called APML, which was an open format, an open standard. And that's how I connect, got connected to a guy called Chris Sard, who's another Aussie, who's a yeah. friend of ours. And um, basically with Chris Sard, I started advising him and helping him out. And then together we created this group that then blew up in the media. It was called the Data Portability Project. Robert Scoble uh, tweeted it once and like literally overnight our, our lives changed. And so uh, data portability became this like huge thing. And uh, again, this is going back to 2007, 2008 time period. Um, and even though that, that, that group's kind of fallen apart, you still see the influence that in the industry right now, like the European Union has one of its principles, data portability. And that's no accident because we work with a lot of these researchers out of the academic community in Europe, for example, as well as the semantic web and all that. So that's, that's how I... That's how I built my network in America, basically. And one of the guys that I met through that, he said to me, I belonged in America. Uh, stop wasting my time in Australia. If I want to create a business, move to America. And he goes, look, just book a trip and I'll introduce it to some people. I can't promise anything. And I said, sure. And so the first guy I met was uh, 
uh, Kevin Laws, who was at the time uh, the CEO of Vast.com. Uh, mm-hmm. The second guy I met was the chairman of Vast and another friend of this friend of mine, uh, now friend of mine, mentor, uh, called Naval, who, uh, you know, some wow. people might know is, yeah, this is before he kind of became the guru of Silicon Valley. Um, sure. And then the third guy I never met. But uh, I, uh, yeah, so I, I met the two of them. They both liked me. Naval said to me, it's an intelligence test to move to Silicon Valley. That was part of his pitch to me. And um yeah, they created a role for me, and that's how I got my first job. And even though I was in an accounting finance role, they deliberately created this role knowing that not only am I kind of fixing a problem at the startup because I didn't have anyone, but that I would transition eventually into other roles and then probably eventually create my own business. And it only took six months before I created my first business, uh, Startup Bus, which is, is still running. Um, yeah. And that kind of set the next kind of – few years of my life but before going on yeah that that's uh that's that was basically how i got to the u.s wow that's that's an incredible story actually i remember the first time meeting chris sod uh when uh vicky vicky um vicky forest vicky forest yeah, yeah right. she is the, like she is like the the super networker of connecting uh-huh. basically australia with silicon valley and one uh-huh. of her early batches had chris come on board and he he recently in the last few years posted a picture of his first ever business cards and he had my original plug and play business card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, so it's uh, definitely uh time flies it feels like yesterday. And I'm yeah. it's interesting you didn't bring bu- bring up in your intro startup bus. To me, you know, when I think of you um, you know, the the biggest one of the biggest ones is the startup bus, man. I think it's a very interesting fascinating story. Um you know, like taking basically buses, I believe, to South by Southwest from Silicon Valley and then eventually from New York and major cities. And within that bus, you could actually do like, uh, you know, a startup idea within 30, what is it, 24, 48 hours, depending on the, the length of the drive. Yeah, it's, it started as a joke. I, I literally was making a joke at my Sydney farewell drinks that really? we should do a, yeah, we should do a road trip to the conference South by Southwest. <laughs> and um, we should create a startup by the time we get off the bus. A- actually, a friend of mine had this event, Startup Weekend, and he said we should do a Startup Weekend. I go, yep, let's launch a startup on the bus. And I was completely joking. I, I mean, it's just yeah. like, it's, it's such a stupid idea to suggest that you're going to create a startup on a bus trip for three days to from California to, Cal- to Texas. But yeah, that's basically what happened. And um I, six six months later, when I moved back to Australia to visit family, um, I, I got reminded by some people, hey, are you going to do this thing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks for reminding me. So when I got back to the US after rugby training, I just you know registered the startupbus.com and then I created a website and uh, created a Twitter account and I followed people. And then, um, yeah, like the next day I get emailed by Lena Rao, I think it was, who was a writer at TechCrunch at the time, going, sure. I want to know more about Startup Bus. And I'm like, sure. And um, uh, I told her about and it. She goes, this time, is awesome. Yeah, so at that time, like just to be clarified, TechCrunch was the mothership for anybody yeah. who wants to get into a startup and tech uh, scene. Right now, there's so much competition as far as getting featured. Um, it's it's an abundance. But back then, you wanted to get on TechCrunch. It was Crunch. a big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. and so I... I um, and it was actually Chris Saad that told me, I asked him, how do I raise money for this thing? He goes, you need a website. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So I created the website, <laughs> created the Twitter account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basic stuff. And I yeah. got down a bus 
that was rolling on two a school bus rolling on two wheels. That was my avatar. And I followed all the TechCrunch journalists, and I think that's how they found out about me. I, I, I can't think of any other connection. Anyway, Lena emailed me. I literally just told her what I told you now. And before I yeah. could finish, she's like, this is awesome. I'm writing about it. Have a good day. And I'm like, okay. And I go back to my desk, and then like oh, my. an hour later, suddenly my inbox just explodes. It's like you know, you, I was looking at my inbox, and it was like every second a new email would come in. And I'm just like, oh my god, what the hell's going on here? And um, this was this was the start of Startup Us. And so, basically, over the next three weeks, I, you know, and just to give you context, I had five hundred dollars in my bank account at the time, and I needed twenty thousand wow. dollars to execute on this event that no one's really done before. I didn't know if you could do Wi-Fi on a bus, and I had to find people, I had to find sponsors to cover it, uh, I had to find a bus. Um, and yeah, over the next three weeks. I somehow pulled it off. I raised 20 grand. I found 25 people and executed on the first event. And um, when we Amazing. did, and my goal for the first event was just to sort of make sure it arrives without the wheels falling off. But uh, the following year, I decided to run it as a competition with six buses competing. And I got the people from the first bus to help me organize that one. And so some of the people that came back included guys like Brandon Leonardo, uh, Jonas Huckelstein, uh, Justin Isaf, and I mentioned just their names, and there's plenty of other great people. But just because this is kind of reflective of the community that Startup Us is, Brandon is one of the co-founders of Instacart. Jonas is one of the co-founders of Monzo, which is the billion-dollar bank over in London. Justin sure. is the deputy CTO in New York City, um, and so that these guys set the culture of what Startup Us would be. It's it was a it was kind of a hackathon, but not really. It's kind of a competition, but not really. It's kind of a road trip, but not really. But it's really a community, and we do this experience where we put people through hell over three days, uh, and we've done this in Africa, Europe, America, and Australia. We've had about eighteen hundred people over the years do it, um, and yeah. you know we run an application process. We pick the best people we want. We put them on a bus. They create projects. These people go on to create real businesses after that. Some of them directly off the bus. Uh, Listener is an example. It's raised forty million dollars. It's like an audio tagging technology. But also indirectly. So, like the the segment guys, they were a bunch of MIT students that got on the bus, created a project called Skillshare, got accepted into Y Combinator, uh, pivoted halfway through YC into Segment, and then Segment sold for what? I don't know, two billion dollars uh, by Twilio, which is actually a startup bus sponsor. So yeah, it's kind of like oh it's just my god, about, uh, <laughs> look back ten years. Yeah, yeah, it's just like uh, it's it's become this community of just badass people. Um, sure. And you know, I'm still the joke's on me because I'm still running in it. It's not like I've had any equity in these companies, but it's just phenomenal to see people at the start of their journey going to become the ne- the the new industry leaders. And I'm, um, yeah, it, when you call it my biggest success, it's probably been my biggest contribution in the world because I've brought people together to create value. But uh, yeah, that's I guess that's one of the things I've done that's kind of cool. But you know, I don't, I don't think of it as my biggest success. <laughs> No, it's not. Well, I mean, you, hats off to you because this is an incredible story feat. It's it's a it's a seamless way that you've got connected to, uh, you know, people that's going to be part of your life story throughout. Um, and yeah, like these these stories about these companies actually raising capital or like friendships created. Uh, you know, and it is kind of a a mix of like intense situation, but a lot of fun. Um, at the end of the day, South by Southwest I call is like a professional spring break. 
Um, so you're almost looking forward to get there, try to get something hacked. And and historically, South by was the place you wanted to launch. I mean, I remember yeah. Twitter tried to do a big yeah. push, um, but really it was like Foursquare Four and yeah. um, a few others afterwards that literally, uh, yeah, you know, tried to launch. We got too big for South by because we were bringing literally hundreds of people from across the country into Austin without badges, which was nearly everyone that is in Austin. We yeah. got labeled by South by as like the bad people because we were bringing all these people without badges. And even though I was paying double digit money to South by just to have the privilege of running an event in Austin in parallel, it got to the point where they just became uh, it was awful. They 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 would try to shut down our events because we had to pay them protection money. I'm not surprised they would embrace you guys. I mean, like yeah. the startup bus South by. Uh, you know, can you imagine if that would have been a national thing to uh, we, you know scale up we, South? We got we got we got we got scapegoated as the all the people without badges at South by. You know, so that they, they yeah. blamed us as being part of the problem. So anyway, we're, we're now completely detached from any association with South by or Austin or even Fair. Texas. And we've now run it uh, in different locations, different countries, and it works actually better. So, you know, it was a great yep. time when we did it. It was South by, it's a very unique experience, but uh, yeah, we, we, we've moved on from that. Yeah. Okay. So um, if you said this is like, besides startup bus, like how, how have you done and managed your time uh, running other businesses while doing this? Um, but you've also spun out ideas very similarly. I mean, you had a really cool place called Startup House, which was almost like a off shared office space incubator, um, you know, uh, almost dormitory like for people who traveled yeah. in and wanted to stay in San Francisco. It was in the heart of South of Market. Um, you know, so that was kind of a spin off idea that you had for yeah, so, I mean, six so years. I, I don't remember I, how many years it was six, seven years and two buildings. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I, after I did the first bus, I thought, how do I turn this into business? And naturally, my thoughts was like create an incubator. And so uh, YC was all the rage at the time. And I thought to myself, the value of seed money is actually to reduce your living costs. Like that's where you go to pay rent, food and all that. And I thought, why don't I give the equivalent of seed money through free accommodation, for example, and parallel to that, have a cash flow business that could fund. Um, anyway, that ended up getting me more into the real estate game. I took over abandoned warehouses and converted them into office space or co-living space. I, I broke rules that I didn't know existed. And so I, know, I now know way too much about San Francisco planning code and building code, which uh, you know I'm, I'm glad I learned about it. But yeah, it partly burnt me out. But yeah, for, for seven years, I was kind of doing that. And then I decided to just shut down the business because I... I, I got sick of the landlord business. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different beast, especially being yet your background's more into the entrepreneurship tech side of things. Uh, yeah. And what, uh, I mean, do you have any, I think there's like one, there's got to be at least one or two startups you're still active from that though. Um, I think it's Bridgeify and others that you're uh, active Yeah, actually, on. yeah, so Bridgeify, I was on a board meeting today for them. Um, so Bridgeify was a company that was a runner-up in Startup Us that I yep. incubated through Startup House and I got advisor equity because of that um, and they, because they liked me, I guess. And yeah, I've been an advisor ever since and they've now had many millions of downloads. Uh, very exciting what's going on, some of the discussions that are going on. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm on the board of Bridgeify and that was very much a Startup Us, Startup House uh, thing. <laughs> so what is, uh, just for people who don't know, what does Bridgeify do? 
Bridgeify, uh, God, I, I don't know what the latest slogan is, but basically it connects devices without internet. So yeah, basically like chat, like on, on um, you know, it's almost like picturing um, a chat app, but without being on internet, like through Bluetooth or other channels, yeah. right? So, so, so an example would be, uh, let's say you, we both have Venmo and we're at a concert and we can't Venmo each other because oh, the internet's part. down. They've got an SDK that if Venmo implemented would allow us to send money to use Venmo without the internet. And it uses other technologies to do that and actually creates a mesh network. So let's say you're at a stadium yeah. or let's say there's a natural disaster and you just don't have cell service, but there's one person that can connect to cell service or whatever. You can create this mesh network amongst all the people that are there that eventually bridges to an actual network. So uh, it, 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 there's been huge, uh, huge, like last year alone, they got millions of downloads from the Myanmar things that happened, you know, that uh, burned oh, right. military dictatorship there. So whenever there's basically a crisis, especially a political crisis, Bridgify's numbers just tick up because it's um, it's it's a way for people to communicate and it's moving towards being more of a decentralized technology. So it's going to be more censorship resistant. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very exciting what, what Bridgify's doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. That's just fantastic to see them uh, grow, and it seems like it's moving towards a blockchain experience. Uh, that's awesome. And then um, you were mentioning about the, a few other things here, which was uh, Zoom Systems and Swift. Uh, is that the, the latest plat- the companies you were working on, or some Zoom Systems that you uh, sold to uh, um, Swift most recently? So Zoom, Zoom was a company created about 20 years ago, uh, it's got a long history in itself. It's all the airport kiosks at airports, um, as well as other places. So that used to be Best Buy stores and, and all that. And um, okay, yeah. as I was shutting down Startup House, I got asked to help run it and turn it around. And so uh, I did that for three years. And now it's basically fully absorbed into Swift, which acquired Zoom. Uh, ironically, by the same founder, the same founder of Zoom and Swift is Gal Smith, who's a friend of mine, which is how I got involved. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was an experience in itself uh, to be suddenly, you know, from, from being a broke ass entrepreneur incubating people to um, uh, running a twenty million dollar a year, or well, it was actually a hundred million dollar a year in terms of sales uh, business. Uh, and with a whole yeah. management team that were like ten years older than me, um, yeah, that was that was definitely a an experience. <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because I'm actually working for a public company now, um, and I, I, it's I think it's very healthy for people to try working in different uh, industries, um, and you know, like because at some point startups have to, you know, you want to scale and get become like a public company. You have to understand what does it mean to have a hundred million to a billion dollar run rate. Totally, um, totally, right. Uh, so, you know, things move a little slower, strategic. Um, so the, definitely the skill set. Yeah, like the the skill set you need at an early stage business, and I'm talking about you know pre pre product stage, um, pre traction stage, versus a growth business, versus a mature business. I mean, yes. and then there's the fourth cycle is decline. But like all four of those stages, just because you're a good startup CEO doesn't mean you're a good growth CEO and doesn't mean you're a good mature company CEO. It's a completely different skill set. Um, it's a completely different personality. And I think it's very rare to find anyone that can be good at all those different stages. And it's, you know, of the people that have done it, 
you know, guys like Steve Jobs or, you know, even uh, Travis, yeah. the Uber founder and all that, I, I yeah, you does. hear about their, their personality and how almost toxic their workplaces are. But it's because um, you need a certain type of personality for a certain stage and it doesn't work otherwise. So I think it's very rare to find someone that can be good at uh, have, be able to switch between the different um, the different he- mindsets that you need in those different stages. Very rare. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, the companies do evolve too, and industries do evolve to a certain extent. People, uh, companies that do a lot of acquisitions at some point, if they don't basically create their own products, which we yeah. see now, There's a lot of uh, like massive consolidation that's happening. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. and then I'm, I'm one of the things. Uh, I am also curious about is you you're all uh, in this world. I, I believe in this like balance. I mean, you know, we're living in this world that's kind of a different in the last few years with the pandemic. Um, but you you know, we're trying to survive and do our thing and, and have families. And you're a you're a family man now. And um, how do you balance uh, you know the startup lifestyle? Um, and I know your wife has been in this world, so she's a little bit more understandable. Um, and and you also traveled a bit in this couple of years. Uh, so you said, you know, you've been to Russia and then you're going to go to Australia. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you do all this, like, and balance it out with the family? Yeah, well, uh, um, my my old boss, George Zachary, who was my boss at CRV, the venture firm, he used to joke that he's be- he started seed investing in Silicon Valley. Um, he was the first VC to do it before it became like an industry in itself. He used to make a joke that the best seed investment he's ever made were his twins. And in this weird, weird wow. twist of – I had twins now. Like my boss and mentor who had twins are boy-girl twins. I have a boy-girl twins. And so it's phenomenal to see them grow up. Um, yeah, that's been my life for the last two years. You know, they're 22 months now. Um, uh, I'm, Amazing. I'm, I'm also married to to a Russian and, you know, that that's – that's in itself a cultural experience, um, which is part of the reason why we moved to Russia for eight months for family reasons, but that ended up being a life experience. Uh, and yeah, like the combination of, you know, what everyone's been going through with COVID and shutdowns, it's, it's been very hard. Uh, and I've also been trying to adjust with the, the whole marriage thing and having kids and for eight months living in Russia. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a ride for sure the last two months, uh, the last two years. Um, and but to your question about how do you manage time, that's a very good question. I, yeah. I I think once you once you have a family, you realize things that probably were obvious before, but then everything becomes black and white. And it's because your time becomes so precious that you no longer have the ability or the willingness to have your time get wasted. Uh, and so I, I, I feel like I'm a lot more efficient now in how I just view things. Uh, I feel like my political opinions have even changed, um, and it's so it's so I, I I'm not good at the time efficiency. I think because I've got so many competing things for my attention, uh, but it's a it's it's a different life. <laughs> like it, it sounds obvious, you know, you have kids and you have a family, sure. and it's it's a different stage of life. But it is a completely different life, and the skills that you need to learn there uh, to that that. I think there needs to be more investment in that, like trying to be a good father and trying to be a good husband. I mean, that's a full-time job in itself. And yeah. they, that, that's what that's what needs to be more in society. We need to be investing more in people to, you know, how do they manage conflict with their partner and how do they uh, behave better so that their kids can become healthy human beings. 
you know, stuff like this, I, I think is there's someone needs to be pushing it because it's going to solve a lot of our problems in society, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Mental health and mental health startups, um, they're slowly coming about. I mean, uh, you, you see this with like the brain training applications. You see this with, uh, you know, the smart devices from aura rings to other things, right? They, but they're very little bit more linear than complexity involved. Um, so um, I do know startup in Toronto that's trying to work on like psychology and it's a lot more detail oriented, um, but the process for that is a lot lot longer I, I, um, I, I don't think i don't think it's even psychology i think it's just communication you know like I, well, I, communication I is definitely the biggest key for sure when clubhouse came out a year ago and i was spending a bit of time on that i'll find all these people yelling at each other and all this conflict and i kind of just realized this is how people probably talk at home <laughs> you know and, and it's like if anything mm-hmm. clubhouse just became this microscope of how shitty we all talk to each other <laughs> it's terrible so um yeah i i I, I think it's a yeah. We, we don't need to keep beating this bush, but it's a it's a skill set. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's hard, but it's important. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you brought up another thing too is like this notion that uh, your your brain is circling. You have a lot of things. It you know, technology is also unlocked things where you literally and within a second you can turn it on your phone and you're distracted and or you're busy with something else, right? So it's kind of like this is an interesting topic. I think we could definitely have it over another podcast. Yeah, uh, maybe <laughs> with other friends for sure. What I'm intrigued about is like. Obviously, um, you know, with what's going on in the political world uh, right now, we, I'm, I personally, you know, don't want to get into details of politics, but what I'm intrigued is like you lived in Russia for a while. Um, How is, you know, the lifestyle there, uh, you know, different from the West a little bit as, as far as also technology? Were you able to see any tech-based products and companies yeah. there? And um, how do you see that, that, that different? Because I've been working uh, for a company in China and, uh, you know, they have the 996 where basically for six days, for nine hours straight, they're working. Um, and, you know, VCs were saying like, you know, you got to watch out what's going on in Beijing and Shenzhen and other places because they're outperforming us. The startup scene now here is almost like, in my opinion, banking. You need like to pay a lot more for funding um, to scale up in Silicon Valley and in the U.S. because, the, you know, inflation where other places is just cheaper to do. Um, yeah. and, and at the end of the day, it's also STEM, which is technology driven education is so key in these cultures. Um, mm-hmm. so that's another thing I want to think, like, see, like, what do you see? You, were you in Moscow? What, what city were you guys in? So we, we did go to Moscow, but we were in Izevsk, which geographically is more like above Iran. If you look at a map of Russia, it's like right in the middle of, okay. of nowhere. Um, it's on the European side of the Ural Mountains, and the Ural Mountains are what traditionally is what defines Asia versus Europe. Um, it was an unlisted city during the Soviet days because what happened was uh, the during the Soviet days they moved. Um, I think it was after World War Two they moved all their defense industry there. So the AK forty seven, for example, is made in Ijevsk. Uh, there's I remember this park that we went to every every Sunday with the kids. And I, I suddenly noticed this uh, anti-aircraft truck sitting outside a building. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I looked up the company, and it's one of the dozen uh, state defense companies. It's a major employer in the city. So it was kind of interesting to see a city that's kind of got its main industry as defense. Um, but in terms of what life was like there, it was remarkably 
good. Um, now, I, I, there is definitely an income inequality issue, but at the same time, the cost of living is so much cheaper there. And like, there were a few differences where I'll say life's very different. Um, and I'll give you a few examples, but otherwise it was the same as being in the U S in terms of, you know, like uh, here were the differences. Um, uh, this is a basic one, but clean water, sometimes uh, the hot water would stop. And for a long period, it was yellow. So the pipes are just old. Uh, we, we take this for granted now, but accessibility. So, uh, in 1990, I pushed the, um, ADA rules and basically infrastructure around the US now can cater to disabled people and by disabled it's also people that need more assistance like a, a pregnant woman trying to push her other baby with a pram so little things like carve outs in the in the sidewalks for example uh, or uh, uh, you know not some some airports didn't even have elevators you know things like that that yeah. ADA requires as a rule in America doesn't exist in, in Russia and it's a noticeable difference. We, we, we had this heartbreaking story where the nanny that we had, her grandson was disabled and he mm. had to carry, he, they had to carry him in his big uh, chair up like six flights of stairs every day because there's no elevator there. So that's kind of how the quality of life gets affected by things like that. Um, I mean, the other big thing was there's no Amazon. Like there was this thing called Ozone, but half the stuff that I ordered from that either didn't turn up or I couldn't find. Uh, so like, I couldn't satisfy my, my Amazon addiction. You know, as soon as I got back to the U S that was like a, that was a huge, huge thing about coming back. I forgot how essential it is. The dopamine hit that I get from ordering stuff and getting presents every day outside my, outside my door. Uh, but if you exclude things like that, um, life felt very normal and very developed. Um, because I didn't really know anyone. The only real social interaction I had was when I went to the gym and I sort of got to know everyone at the gym. And it, it was remarkable to see the influence of Instagram. Like there's like, it's, it's basically a community of fitness people around Instagram sharing stories. And that, that was remarkable to see just how much of an impact Instagram stories is having in Russia, which is a very status type culture, you know, especially Moscow, but also the rest of Russia, everyone cares about how you look. So it kind of makes sense that that exists, but um, yeah, Russia is awesome, you know, and, it is like a tense situation where you can't talk freely. There's a disconnect between the old people and the young people because the old people get their news from Channel One, which is the state broadcaster, but the young mm. people get their news from Telegram. Like you get journalists that have like up to a million followers on Telegram. And so there's literally two different universes of news consumption going on, which explains why there's a, dis uh, a split between the young and the old in Russia when it comes to politics. Um, but, but living in Russia, it also, you know, when I combine it with my experience of growing up Greek and living in Greece and living in Australia and, and America, I've always been fascinated about the whole East-West division. And yeah. if you look in history, it's even more interesting. It's actually something I've been studying recently. But when you see from the other perspective, you kind of realize how much bullshit there is. And I, I'm going to give you an example, uh, something that I've just been thinking about this last week. But, you know, Russia right now is in the news. Uh, they've got their 100,000 troops by Ukraine and all that. Um, but what is the actual reason why NATO exists now? The, the Cold War is over. Why, you know, why, why isn't Russia a part of NATO? Um, why, why is that even a crazy question to ask? And 
Something I've noticed when I listen to podcasts of people that work in the military or the government, they describe Russia as a strategic competitor. And that type of language, you don't really hear that normally in politics. You hear that in industry. You hear that maybe when there's defense companies that are competing for contracts. And so NATO, I think, and I know this is a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but I think NATO is just a way the it's a, the marketing arm to the American defense industry. And Russia's defense industry is a competitive threat to it. That's why Russia will never be a part of NATO. But like that's that's a that's a thought I had, and I'm happy to be wrong. But that's what you kind of realize. You start seeing the world from a different perspective. And when you come from an American-led world, which is what Australia was, um, you see the world in a very certain way. But you know, when you have the privilege of living in another culture, as you can relate to if you're Iranian background, you do see things differently. Um, I'll yeah, give you another right. example. When, when I was in, when I uh, did my one year traveling, I spent time in Greece. And in May, it's kind of like the, uh, it, it's when all the Greeks go party. It's the equivalent of, uh, sorry, I'm thinking of the Australian term, schoolies, uh, spring break. It's like spring break in Greece. <laughs> and yeah. so, I, I remember that we turned up to this bar. It was like 4 a.m. All the other clubs were shut. And then within an hour, everyone's dancing on tables. It was the most fun I've probably ever had in my life. That like It was like this Greek spirit that I can't yeah. even explain because it doesn't exist in the Anglo-English world. And I contrast that to a few months later where I went to the Greek islands and partied so hard and got pneumonia because I was partying so hard. And it, <laughs> I can genuinely tell you it's a completely different experience. And I'm not talking yeah. – this isn't about – political opinions here it's just like you just feel it it's a it's a completely different way of life and so um going back to your question life in russia is great you know um it's it's not great if you're gonna threaten the political establishment but otherwise you can have a good life in russia and quite frankly it's it's cheaper so if you're from the west you're probably gonna have a better life (laughs) yeah i mean oh wow i mean thanks for the explanation of all that i mean i could definitely relate a lot of that with the People say like, wow, when you go, why do Persians like to party? It's because we just want to let loose and have a good time and be happy uh, because, we, you know, on a no- normal day-to-day levels, there's so much stress we could re- we, we deal with already. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and people, and, but people, people, people just don't understand this. Like I've got friends that don't speak foreign languages and they don't see the value in speaking foreign languages. And so if you don't, if you don't have that, you're never going to see that perspective uh, in Greek. The third letter of the alphabet is gamma, which is a gus sound. So Arabs can make this sound, but no one else other than Greeks and Arabs can make the sound. It's a combination between a G and a, and a Y. And so you, unless you learn that as a baby growing up, you're never going to be able to pronounce a gamma. It's just you, your brain just can't somehow adapt. And again, you might need to check up on the science on this, but I know for sure. a fact it's very hard to say gamma if you didn't grow up with it. And so that's another example of like people just don't realize because they haven't experienced it or they haven't seen that perspective. And once you get pulled out of the world that you're in and you then look from this different perspective, you do just kind of realize how much of a scam a lot of the <laughs> what you read in the news is. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there are two things I want to, uh, I guess, bring up. The first is like this relates this is how I feel like, and regardless of what people think, Dave Chappelle, in my opinion, is one of the most brilliant artists of our generation. His Chappelle show specifically, right? It's way uh, before social media. He has that uh, scene with um, him. He brings in John Mayer when he was really young and d- does like the whole like, why do people think like every ethnic group 
does doesn't know how to dance or party. So when he brings John, like he goes to like uh, John Mayer into like a uh, you know boardroom, and all of a sudden they're all dancing because he's playing rock, you know. And then he goes into like <laughs> uh, uh, he takes uh, I forgot the drummer's name from uh, Roots, and he into like a barbershop, and everybody's starting hip hop flowing and dancing there. And then he goes into like another spot with the the Latin community to do samba. So it's like it's just kind of the relativity is there, but it's difficult to match that. He did an incredible job with just like music, for example. Totally. Um, yeah, and then and then you brought up the fact that like, you know, politically you don't see this, but on a social level, standard of living could be anywhere in the world if you want to kind of understand it comfortably. Um, like, where do you feel comfortable living uh, with a good house and, and uh, you know, nice job and raising a family? And you could do it here, you could do it in Russia or anywhere else. It really just depends on um, on that. And even even in the U.S., the argument like now, like after I think COVID ex- exploded the the notion like, do you have to live in a big city? Is New York a big city? No, you could go to Bozeman, you could go to Bend, Oregon. Um, yeah. So um, these are interesting. Yeah, I mean points. that's that's the that's the that's a big thing that I learned from Russia, and I actually debate this with my wife all the time. She says people are very poor there and they're suffering, but I, I think they're not suffering as much, even though there's a low income levels, because housing is so much cheaper. Like during the Soviet days, they just built all these apartments, mm. and they're not great. They're like matchboxes, but everyone has housing. Whereas what's happened in America is. The wealth of the middle class is all tied up in housing. Like housing has become how the middle class gets its wealth. And so mm-hmm. what's happened is it's benefited the baby boomer generation, but now the generations trying to enter the housing market can't because it's just ridiculous. And it's only going to get worse. So the 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 the, 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 what, the seeing the difference between housing uh, and how housing since the sixties has kind of turn into this whole asset investment class where you've now got private equity players just buying up single family homes and pricing out people uh, versus what you see in Russia where there's just a lot of cheap housing. I think it makes a huge difference on the quality of life. You know, like yeah, it's, I mean, it's uh, yeah. After World War II, America was like the dream place. It, it literally was like every, the standard of living of a middle-class American was the richest and wealthiest in the world. Um, and this is like even in compared to the same time as Cold War, um, and after Cold War, and then once, in my opinion, Reaganomics came into uh, fruition, the banks exploded. And, and then, that, yeah, the elitism of the banks and the private equity firms, that, that just kind of spewed where we are now. Like, it's just massive inflation. Um, housing is just like keeps on going up and up. And you have to, you know, you have to like up and up your salary. There's, um, a, to- there's a great website called... Uh- I think it's WTF happened in 1971.com. It basically just shows how like we were bumbling along in the society and then something happened in 1971 where things just went off the charts. And since then we haven't been able to course correct. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a great website because it really makes you wonder like what the hell happened? (laughs) Yeah, man. Uh, Well, Hey, this has been incredible. I want to, with the time we have remaining, ask you like, what are you What are you working on these days? Uh, what What are you What's your perspective on twenty twenty two and the next you know few years and so forth? Yeah, so um, uh, you know, still working on startup us. Um, we we just made an announcement actually for my uh, for the next leaders, and I'm really excited by them uh, what they're going to do, and we're going to kind of pivot startup us a little bit this year because we haven't had every year we kind of just 
Winston repeated the same thing that the same strategy that I set up back in the first few years. So now that we've had two years where we had to stay put, it's given us an opportunity to just rethink what we do. And so when we come back in the world, it will be a little different. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for where that difference will be. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being helping out a friend, uh, uh, Alistair, actually, you know him as well. Um, sure. with, uh, he's, he's just raised a bunch of money and we're about to go public. So I've been uh, working with them. Um, the company's called Darwinium. So you can go to darwinium.com. There's not much on the website right now, but it's basically a uh, digital risk technology. Um, it's it's really powerful uh, technology that can understand the people that use your internet services and then filter them and reprioritize them. So an example use case would be um, you've got your Shabir Shabir com website and you're getting inundated by bot farms from russia but you've also got vip people that you want visiting your website our technology will be able to distinguish who's visiting the website and reprioritize the traffic accordingly um, so that's kind of an example use case of uh the power of this technology but it's it's really okay. deep on encryption uh it's real real cutting edge stuff there um and uh yeah i'm also just working on I, I feel like um, I've spent a long time really working on, on business and focused on business, and I'm always going to be doing that, but I'm now trying to catch up on other things in life, like reading a lot more books, for example, um, and I, I'm really enjoying that because even though it's not business, I think it's in a really important part of your life to be just reading books. So that's that's becoming a pretty serious hobby of mine where I'm trying to just consume a lot more content. Um, but yeah. You know, um, just kind of in terms of what's going to happen this year, where I see things are going. Um, I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a big question uh, in terms of the world or in terms of me. I don't know, but in terms <laughs> of the world, I, I, I think um, I think COVID uh, is, has transformed the world in a way where we're rethinking things. And so, to link this back to something we said before, one of the the easiest ways that we can change society right now is if we make distributed work the norm, where if people no longer have to go and live in a city to work at a company, but can instead work remotely in a different location, we suddenly solve the traffic problem, we solve the housing problem, we solve the uh, inflation problem because people aren't going to always want to need a pay rise to be able to cover their living costs. The, the way that we're going to solve society's problems is not by uh, distributing more cash and increasing more taxes on the wealthy, that's it's it's never going to work. What's going to work is if we can reduce the cost in things. If we can reduce the cost of housing and transport and communication and all that stuff, we we don't need as much money. And so that's where I feel like the political discussion needs to go. And I feel like COVID is now stepping us into that direction because we've now had this two years of working remotely or in a distributed way. Like Darwinium itself was born as a distributed company. Like it's in the culture very hard to be a distributed company uh, later, but it's very easy to stay a distributed company if you've got it in your culture. So I think that's going to be uh, a permanent thing in our society. Um, you know, you look at San Francisco and there's all these parklets uh, because it was the only way that restaurants could exist. And I think that's another externality of COVID where it's just creating a, re a rethink on how we do things. And so I, I'm I'm excited for the fact that we're rethinking things like this and it's it's moving towards what I think uh, it's it's going to unlock more potential in society. So 
in, in terms of this year, I think we're going to have another variant that everyone's going that the media is going to go bananas over. Um, I think we'll be fine as well because these variants just keep getting weaker and weaker as more people get vaccinated. Uh, I think the infrastructure in society is going to get more up to date to react to to these uh, epidemics and pandemics, which will probably happen a lot more in our lives as long as we have these labs around the world that are, you know, militaries trying to experiment with viruses. And if you look into that, it, that is kind of the big revelation of COVID, I think. Whether that's what happened in China or not, the amount of lab accidents that have happened over the last few decades, it is absolutely mind-blowing and scary. And we need sure. more global rules that basically regulate this because it's it's where we're going to see future pandemics coming from. This isn't like a unique use case. It's happened before. It's just the most recent one. So uh, again, that's I don't see that changing in 2022, but I hope there's an awareness and things like that that will start transferring to the politics. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know I'm optimistic about 2022. It's a uh, you know I, I'm always optimistic about the future. Uh, you know that's 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 I guess part of my personality. So I'm always looking forward to what's about to happen. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm pretty optimistic. And those are really good uh, perspectives because this is definitely the lifestyle we might be living in uh, for a while. And uh, you definitely have to have stamina and grit to go through it. And But um, I'm very optimistic because I think people's mindsets are definitely changing. Uh, we've accelerated the, the work from home experience um, on another level. But man, hey, this uh, hearing your story has been incredible. Uh, the fact that you've traveled through like 50 countries and lived in places like Russia, survived with $400 in Iran, uh, you know, uh, party. I haven't told- even told you about the times where I had guns pulled in my head and I told the guys to fuck off and they did. <laughs> oh my God. Well, maybe we have to save that for part two. Uh- <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. This has been a lot of fun. Sorry, I shouldn't uh- have sworn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank no, you for having no, me. No, it's all good. This is why we do podcasts. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. Uh, so, you know, you know, thanks again. And, um, you know, appreciate having you on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing where you take these podcasts. Cheers, man. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Yeah.